So go uh, to your microphone and hit go the to up the arrow. Settings. No, no, don't go to settings. You, you see, you see on the bottom oh, left, okay. the microphone, it says mute underneath it. So if you click that up arrow, you can select a microphone. So if I go microphone Yeti. Is that what your yeah. big silver mic? Yeah, click that. Okay, so how does it sound now? You sound great now. Yeah, I can, I can hear myself better too. Yes, you can. Hey everybody and welcome to You're On Mute. I'm Pastor Elise. And I'm Pastor Mary. So good to have you all here for episode two. We are going to dive into uh, a subject that is near and dear to both of our hearts. Yes, um, and it is. also, I think will be very applicable to not just ministry, but a lot of other professions as well. We are going to talk about women in ministry, specifically in leadership roles, such as pastors, deacons, um, and any other uh, uh, rostered position. Exactly. And, um, I thought I could share just a little bit at the beginning about, um, you know, as we've said um, in, in introducing ourselves, we're both pastors in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, uh, which was started in 1988, but our history and our roots go much deeper than that. Um, those of us who were in what we call predecessor church bodies, um, because Lutherans have been in North America since 18th, even 17th century, depending on where you count it. Mm -hmm. um, so back in, um, there were no women leaders other than lay leaders, and those were, had a rough time <laughs> as well, <laughs> but no women pastors, no, no women deacons. And up until the late sixties, that was true. And then in um, the, Lutheran churches started like, I don't know, it seemed like all the time they feel like they have to do a study of ministry. So this was because we can never figure it out, I guess. Right. We're so, always practicing. So in the, we're always practicing. So in the late 60s, they were doing, our denomination was doing a study of ministry yet again. And I don't know why they were doing that. I can't remember now or what the point was. But as I recall... Um, the women's auxiliary of our denomination, they were called Lutheran Church Women then, mm -hmm. and they encouraged that study group to consider um, the ordination of women. So that was not something they were thinking about doing. Yeah. So they just kind of made it like a sideline study. Typical. Typical. Yeah. So it was only no big deal. Right. And um, but they did some good you know, biblical work on it. And they kind of came in it from the back door uh, so that they said, basically, we don't see any reason biblically why women can't be ordained. You know, there's nothing Whoa. really prohibiting it. And so yeah. I love the line that they said in that study, which, you know, just kind of gave a, a big thumbs up to the whole thing. And they said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Mm. Yeah. That, you know, um, that women should be ordained. And they were really quoting part of the book of Acts there. Yeah. So that was 1970. And here, you know, I was, I guess I was a freshman in high school and uh, in Columbia, South Carolina, and part of my home church. And you would think this was like a tremendous event, right? That uh, everybody would be like, wow, look what we've done. Look what we can do. No, I really? never, <laughs> I never heard anything about it. Wow. Um, for about three years, I never heard anything about it. Huh. And um, for the 40th anniversary of the ordination of women, I was asked to do a, a banquet speech, basically. Yeah. On the topic. And so I started to research and I'm thinking, well, maybe my little congregation just never said anything about it. Maybe my rural pastor just never said anything about it. Right. I mean, it was very uh, much pre-social media. So it's not like, you know, news traveled that quickly. Right. So sure. You guys were still relying on like pigeons and smoke signals, right? <laughs> right. So <laughs> checking the, you know, the ancient smoke signals, um, which meant everything had to be published in writing, of course. Right. And so I, I did some research on that stuff. And I thought, 
uh, in both in the um, reports, the annual reports of our Synod, um, which are all the, the Lutheran churches in South Carolina, as mm-hmm. well as um, what the women, uh, the Lutheran church women might have had to say about yeah. it. So I searched like a few years before 1970 to see if they mentioned it and several years afterwards to see if they mentioned it. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't anywhere. Really? It wasn't like some big announcement or something? It was nothing. Nobody wow. said anything about it. Um, yeah. I talked to the son of the guy who was, we didn't call them bishops then, but our synod president. Mm-hmm. Said, Did your dad ever talk about this, like at the dinner table or anything? He's like, nope. You know, so Man. nobody talked. And it was 11 years before we ever ordained our first woman in South Carolina. And I was the yeah. third. Right. Yeah. But I mean, wasn't Liz, I mean, Liz Platts, who was the first woman ordained in the ELCA mm-hmm. and she was serving campus ministries, but I mean, right. her ordination made the cover of the Lutheran. That's right. Um, is that really kind of the only, uh, you know, media the, outlet that even covered it or, or looked that was at the it? only thing that I noticed now um, that was back in the days when we all got a Lutheran magazine in our homes. Um, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't old enough to like be flipping through the Lutheran magazine at that point. Right. There was, um, I did some research on her for a class in seminary and there is like this really old school, I think it was like a CNN story, Mm. um, where they cover, uh, her, you know, story to ordination. And, um, she looks like such a badass. They're interviewing her and she's in this like office sitting in front of this wall of books, you know, typical pastor. Right, right. And she's wearing her clerical with like a 1970s mini skirt. And she's just got this like, and I was like, yes, Liz. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was so great. Yeah. And she was like, I mean, I didn't even see coordination. They asked me and I just said, sure. And I'm like, ah, oh, really? I love you so much. I know. You can find that on YouTube. It's totally worth a watch. It's like 30 oh. minutes long. It's awesome. Awesome. Oh, you that's just have neat. to search Elizabeth Platt's ordination. So, yeah. yeah so part cool. of what I part of what I came away with was thinking that um, this is really odd, right? Mm-hmm. Women being pastors is really odd, and yeah, I had never, you know, as I said in the last episode, I mean, I never saw a woman pastor before. But just two quick stories about how I continued to f- feel odd, or had that affirmed for me. Uh So when I'm, so I'm in seminary, third year, you do internship. So I did internship in Philadelphia, which is a pretty Catholic town. I also happened to be pregnant with um, our daughter, Colleen, at that point. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, I was visiting um, one of the big Catholic hospitals. And I was in the elevator, and I was wearing what was typical for me at that time, I had on a black clergy shirt, my Roman collar, and my gray maternity jumper. And so I'm on the elevator, and this guy is on there too. And he, seriously, he looks me up and down, and he goes, what are you? (laughs) And I said, Lutheran. And he goes, oh, thank God. I think he thought he was trapped in an elevator with a pregnant nun and he just didn't know what to do. Oh my God. I remember that's a classic story. I remember that. That's a classic story. And then what we got the second story is we got our first calls and we were in rural South Carolina, Saluda County. And uh, I mean, we were, you know, like I said, I was the first woman in the Lutheran church in our synod to um, have her own congregation. And we were definitely the first clergy couple to be in Mm. South Carolina. So the local newspaper, the Saluda Sentinel, Mm. uh, decided that they wanted to come and interview us. And um, the pastor Anderson. I know. The little (laughs) little Colleen from the elevator is now two years old. (laughs) And so they, they take a picture of us sitting on our sofa in the den and Colleen's in between us. So the, and they interviewed us. And the, the picture comes out on the, the front page of the paper, except it's not just a story about us. Well, it is, but I mean, we're, our picture, so the three of us, is side by side uh, with this picture that they've taken of this strange animal 
And so the, the uh, headline on that picture says, um, half possum, half cat found. So it looked like a cat, but it had the, a tail of a possum. Ugh. And so, and then our picture was right next to it. Look at this other creature. Look at this other weird <laughs> stuff happening in our county. You don't know what's in the woods and you don't know what's in your churches, people. Watch out. <laughs> Danger, oh Will God. Robinson. That's amazing. Oh yeah. my God. So that's, those are kind of some, <laughs> I know, those are kind of some, you know, early type stories. Um, oh my gosh. That, but I know that your generation can tell all kinds of stories too. And we would think that, so I'm kind of 30 years ahead of you. Mm-hmm. think that, um, and I think a lot of people do, you know, we're done with this now, we're on to other issues, but it's just not true, right? No, gosh, not at all. And I mean, talk about like, you know, not getting a lot of uh, media attention or, or even attention from your own denomination. I mean, the fact that Elizabeth Platt's ordination was kind of not swept under the rug, but not really talked about much or celebrated very much. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not even getting into the fact that, you know, the ELCA or the previous bodies didn't ordain a woman of color for another 10 years. And people, if you were to ask the average person who was the first, you know, black woman ordained by the Lutheran church, it would take a, a deep Google search to figure out it's Erlene Miller, you know, Reverend Erlene Miller, who was a big trailblazer, trailblazer in, in that way too. And so, you know, um, you know, we always, especially when we did the, the 50, the 50 anniversary, 50 year anniversary of women's ordination, you know, we had a lot of, I was always careful to say, you know, 50 years of ordaining women and then four years, 40 years of ordaining all women, including women of color. And then we're only 10 years out from openly ordaining and affirming LGBTQ leaders. Right. Um, so openly gay women, openly trans women. So, you know, and that was more in the social media age happened in um, 2009. So we're a little more than 10 years out, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. And so that actually did kind of the word spread a little more quickly about that, but yeah. So that's kind of one of my generation's big wins. Um is, uh, you know, not no longer kind of either asking people to stay in the closet in order to be ordained or having people be extraordinarily ordained. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, being able to, you know, have folks really be themselves. But again, I mean, we, you know, like you were saying, we kind of say we've checked off these boxes when our denomination as a mm-hmm. whole supports something, which is great. I mean, the fact that we can say, you know, look at all like the, you know, over, to like over two thirds of, of our, uh, you know, bishops are women or, you know, our presiding bishop is a woman, um, is great. And we've got our first openly trans bishop, um, you know, that was just elected, you know, within the last few weeks. And so we've got all these things and that's great because a lot of other denominations don't have that support. You know, we were, you know, before we started kind of recording, we were talking about our our sisters in faith who are still Mm -hmm. fighting for ordination, including in the Lutheran world. I mean, the Missouri Synod still will not ordain women. Um, And I've got a fun story about kind of learning more about that battle when I was at a church in Chicago and uh, I was, um, I was a senior in seminary and I had met this pastor, Pastor Harry, uh, at a, at an event and his church, uh, left the Missouri Senate because Pastor Harry was openly gay. And I, I, I've asked him before, you know, can I share your story? And he said, yes, just want to put that out there. Um, and so this church that had been Missouri Synod for 160 years, it was one of the oldest churches in the downtown Chicago area. Um, left the Missouri Synod because they loved Pastor Harry and his leadership so much. And I mean, this church was on the cutting edge of a lot of things. They were the first to integrate in the 60s. Um, Martin Luther King spoke there. Can you uh, say again really what the name of the church is? First Emmanuel Lutheran. Um, really incredible place. And so Pastor Harry and I had met at um, at an event at my seminary, LSTC in Chicago, because Pastor Harry was trying to get involved with the ELCA because that's the direction he figured 
the, his congregation was headed. They were at the time, uh, he described it as they were dating uh, the mm-hmm. ELCA, but hadn't really decided to, to you know, seal a deal. And so um, he was trying to get involved with the seminary because he was he had a real passion for teaching up and coming pastors. And in the Missouri Synod, he was a big deal. I mean, he was really well known. He worked with the seminaries. He always had um, a continuing ed student or an intern. And now he was just left with nothing, uh, because they'd left the Missouri Synod. And so, um, the wife of the pastor before Harry, um, pastor Becker, I believe his name was his wife was, is, I'm pretty sure she's still living. She was incredible in the fight for getting women ordained in the Missouri Synod. And, um, I got to interview her for a project uh, that I was doing on women in ministry. I think I, I interviewed you for that same project. And um, she talked about in the eighties, she was at this big meeting um, for the Missouri Senate, you know, kind of group in Chicago. And they were talking about, you know, um, male language in the Bible and in worship services. And that, and that'll be another episode for us. It will be. <laughs> um, that's a big one. Uh, and then, um, they also were, you know, kind of always touching on this idea of, of ordaining women. And, um, so, they, the excuses or the reasoning, uh, these men were saying they used, you know, male pronouns and, and a lot of, you know, uh, male descriptors in their language was, well, when we say men or mankind, you should just know that it includes everyone that women are just included in that kind of language. And so, uh, Mrs. Becker, uh, when they went on break, um, she went into the men's bathroom and everyone just started losing it. Oh, like, wow. oh my, what are you, what are you doing in here? What are you doing in here? And she said, well, it said men on the door. <laughs> and you just said that, you know, when, uh, when you yeah. hear, when you see men or man, it's it means same, everybody. It's everybody. She's like, and I have to go to the bathroom. So she went <laughs> yeah. into that men's restroom and I like, bless her her. in the middle of the interview she's but I did I asked her I said do you ever think the Missouri Synod will ordain women and she flat out said no she was like I wish she's like I wish it wasn't true but I really do not think um they'll ever get there Uh, the you know there's just you know not as you know there's just not the the open-mindedness that we need and so I asked her I said well then why do you stay you know, why do you stay in a denomination where you could have had a career in ministry and been fantastic at it? And she said, somebody has to stay and fight. Right. And, and right. I thought that was a real incredible, a real incredible stance and, and, and view that she had. And um, mm-hmm. she, she wrote me a really sweet note when I left there, when I graduated or went on to go to internship. But I mean, it was insane. You know, when I, the first time I helped Harry lead worship, I mean, I wasn't even preaching. I obviously wasn't, you know, presiding at the table. I was just like doing the readings and the prayers or something. I had a woman probably in her mid forties come up to me after the service with tears in her eyes. She had grown up Wisconsin Lutheran. Mm-hmm. Which, which is even more conservative, which is even more conservative, especially in terms of, of women in leadership. And she basically said, I never in my life thought I would hear a woman's voice from the altar. Wow. And she was just like, that was the most incredible experience for me. Um, you know, this and that. And then when I did finally get to preach, I was the first woman to ever preach for that congregation. Um, you know, women had spoken or, you know, Mm -hmm. done other things, but it was always followed up, you know, by the pastor for a quote, real message, right. Um, which is the language the members at the time had used. And so they were like, man, you know, you just did the whole thing. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) that's what preaching is. Didn't have to have it followed up or anything. Yeah. Pastor Harry didn't have to say anything after that. Um, and that church was used to, uh, like 20 to 25 minute long sermons. So I really had to break out quite a few, (laughs) quite a few little tricks for that sermon to get through it. But, but yeah, I mean, and that was happening in 2017, uh, you know, kind of my last year in Chicago in seminary Mm -hmm. before I, cause I did a fourth year internship. So I, I, I did all three years straight through. Um, and you know, it was hard for me to believe that I would ever be the first woman to do anything you know, in ministry, especially after, I mean, granted, I mean, I'm, I'm very biased having grown up with you and dad, both mm-hmm, being pastors. Mm-hmm. So a woman in ministry wasn't weird for me. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, so like having people come up to me, like 
teary eyed because Mm -hmm. they heard my voice from the altar. They heard my voice from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it was, it was incredible, but also very sad at the same time. Um, well, and and I think, you know, part of what it reminds us, and I think, you know, we can, um, remind our listeners and have them think about it too, is that any kind of change takes so much longer than, Mm -hmm. than we ever think. There's never a snapping of fingers and you can, you know, you can change your constitution. That is the easy part. I mean, when, Mm -hmm. when our church decided that, um, that, you know, women could be pastors as well as men, all they did was vote on changing the word he to persons when they were talking about pastors. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the living out that word change, it just takes generations. Um, People don't, people don't change quickly and they also regress. Um, I was just um, having lunch with a Baptist minister colleague who has been ordained since 1973. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, Baptists tend to be more congregational with that sort of thing. So her, her local congregation, uh, along with the, along with the blessing of a ministerial association, um, performed her ordination. But, um, you know, just in the year 2000, the Southern Baptist Convention passed um, I don't know, policy rule that women should not be ordained. So that's, ah. you know, that's, that's <clears throat> going back um, other places in the world that were ordaining mm-hmm. women for decades. You know, suddenly there's a conservative bishop who takes over and that person might, might push for it. So I would say, you know, don't ever take things for granted and mm-hmm. just realize that for you know, very often, and certainly in my, in my generation, we were very well aware that um, we sort of represented all women pastors everywhere when we were in a congregation. There was a lot of pressure on us. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. if I screw up, they're never going to call another woman. Um, And, you know, here I am 65 years old, and I have always been the, uh, the first woman pastor in congregations that I've served. And, now that I'm an interim, I have followed um, two women yeah. who were the pastors before me. But, you know, that took a really long time. So even when you've got tons of experience and um, it, tons of age, you know, mm-hmm. go into a place and um, with all of that and have people say, well, I'm not too sure how this congregation will be accepting of a woman pastor. You know, you're really? Really? (laughs) Like what? (laughs) I know it makes no sense. I mean, even, even I feel that like I'm at my current call, I'm not the first woman pastor they've had, but it does seem like, uh, like when I've heard about the other women who have served, I'm definitely the first one since 2011. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, they've had, uh, kind of a part-time associate for a while, or they would bring in like an intern kind of situation, or they would split the associate with the other ELCA congregation in town. I think they only did that once and it didn't really work out, but, um, you know, it really is, there really is that pressure of kind of representing, um, all women in ministry. I mean, at my installation, uh, my friend Liz, who's a pastor in, in, um, Pennsylvania, she came down for it and, all of the like ordained clergy kind of gathered for a picture and I, she wasn't robed up. She was just there to be supportive Mm -hmm. and all of that. But I realized I was the only woman in this picture. And so I was like, Liz, Liz, get up here, get up here. (laughs) I was like, I can't be the only woman in this picture. Plus, I mean, she's an ordained pastor too. So like, why wouldn't she be up there? And so poor thing, she's standing there in like, you know, uh, her shirt and pants and like with all of these robed up people, but Uh, I was like, I refuse to be the only woman in this picture. Like I just, you know, and um, I'm far from, you know, one of the only women in my uh, synod, we've got quite a few pretty, pretty stellar female pastors in the Southeastern synod, but I am definitely the only one in my deanery, you know, kind of my Mm -hmm. local region. Um, And not to mention the youngest by 
25 years at least. I think, Mm -hmm. I think Stan, my co-pastor is the next youngest, um, in our deanery and he's like mid fifties, I believe. So yeah, it's just, you know, it's crazy. I mean, and it's, I get a lot of, uh, uh, kind of like what, when people ask me what I do and I say, well, I'm a Lutheran pastor. And I had one woman the other day I was giving blood and, and she was working in the blood mobile and, and they asked me what I did. And I said, I'm a pastor. And she goes, is that all you do? <laughs> I was like, it's a full-time job, <laughs> but she came from the Baptist tradition where a lot of their pastors are bivocational or like, they're mm-hmm. just the quote pastor, you know, uh, leading worship on Sunday. And, and she was like, why do you think there aren't a lot of women doing this work? And I said, oh, wow. there are a lot of women doing this work. <laughs> but see, not in her tradition. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I mean, we even, we can look back so far, even into biblical history and the, the female presence is so strong. I mean, I pretty much preach the same thing every Easter. Granted, I've only been preaching Easter's for about four <laughs> years now, but I will never not talk about Mary Magdalene on Easter, right? You know, mm-hmm. reminding people she was the first apostle, you know, mm-hmm. is just so crucial for me. And, um, will you tell the red egg story? Cause it's my favorite. Oh, sure. Yeah. So there is this legend, um, that Mary Magdalene, who was the first preacher of the gospel, uh, of the resurrection, uh, was, uh, sitting at a table, I think the emperor, uh, Caesar, was at this table as well. And so she was attempting to explain this uh, uh, crazy notion of resurrection from the dead. And so lots of folks around the table were saying, well, that's not possible. That's a ridiculous idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Who are you, girl? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, talking about. (laughs) Okay, sweetie. Well, honey, if you think so. Mm -hmm. Um, So she said um, something along the lines of, according to legend, that, uh, you know, that if if Christ was actually raised from the dead and she holds up an egg from the table, boiled egg from the table, he said, if if Christ is raised from the dead, this egg will turn red. And it did. And what? (laughs) <laughs> and so um, very often in iconography, Mary Magdalene is pictured with um, holding a red egg. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, that must be a pretty ancient story. Um, but it's just so cool that it's out there. And uh, her feast day will be coming up in July, which nobody ever pays attention to except a few of us. <laughs> so um, we're going to, we're going to have a party. I, I love that story. And I even have a red, a picture of a red egg on my office door. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, I tell it to our kiddos all the time. Cause it was, I mean, I've heard it from you for the first time. I'd never right. heard that legend. And mm-hmm. then, um, now I, I tell it all the time and people are like, that's so cool. And I'm like, I know. No. <laughs> no. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's such a cool story and it really does show, you know, even if, even if the egg didn't turn red, even if it's just mm-hmm. a story about her, you know, she was still at this dinner with Romans, you know, basically saying, Hey, you know, that guy that you hated <laughs> and you, you crucified him in the most brutal way possible. Cause he had all these followers. Well, guess what? We're still here. Right. And, um, boohoo for you. He didn't actually <laughs> stay dead. <laughs> I mean, Mm -hmm. that is gutsy stuff. And I mean, we think of like Junia and all of these other really incredible women Mm. that, you know, most of them aren't even named, but the few perpetual perpetual and Felicity are Mm -hmm. a couple of my favorite girls. Oh yeah. Well, and then, you know, you're telling that story about the pastor's wife that went into the men's bathroom. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. the same kind of thing, you know I mean? Yeah. People are doing that same kind of thing today. Hey, can I read you? Can I read you a little quote that I came across? Yes, please. All right. So um, uh, Richard Lisher is uh, ELCA pastor and was a longtime professor of preaching at Duke Mm -hmm. University. And one of his um, one of his latest books is called The End of Words. 
And he has a chapter on vocation and Mm -hmm. vocation is what, you know, kind of like what God calls you to do or the gifts that you've been given. And some of us may, may follow a profession that makes good use of our vocational gifts and others Mm -hmm. not. I sometimes will say, um, you know, somebody may have a real gift for teaching, Mm -hmm. but their, their job may be that they're the manager of a pizza hut. And, and, you know, perhaps uh, the way that they use their vocation of teaching is tutoring kids as a volunteer. Maybe it's also being really awesome at teaching new employees what their job Mm -hmm. is, you know, stuff like that. Because people always think vocation is just another word for what you do professionally. It may or may not be. But he says, theologically, what distinguishes a vocation from the rigors of a profession is this, you have to die to enter a a vocation. A profession summons the best from you. A vocation calls you away from what you thought was best in you, purifies it and promises to make you something or someone you are not yet. Oh, wow. How was that? That's like, that's deep. <laughs> that's deep. I feel like you definitely live that um, oh, God, in, your, yeah. in your vocational discovery. Yeah, my transition, professional transition. Right. Yeah, I mean, and talk about like, you know, being a woman in a, in a male dominated profession. I mean, the world of athletics and the world of medicine are two of the biggest boys clubs, you know, I've uh-huh. ever been a part of. And um Oh my gosh. I mean, the, the crap we had to put up with as from the time I was an athletic training student at Florida state through my time as like an experienced professional, um, you know, teaching high school and, and working with high school athletics, uh, which is the job I had when I, when I left the profession, I mean, the amount of times a coach called me baby girl Mm -hmm. or, you know, the amount of time, uh, a player would hit on us, um, you know, constantly, especially working, uh, when we were students, um, the amount of athletes that would come in and say like, Hey, I think I pulled my groin. Can you rub it out for me? I mean, just blatant sexual advances and just, you know, get not getting as many opportunities as, as our male counterparts and, um, just not being taken seriously or, you know, uh, having to think, you know, twice as hard about what we were going to wear that day. And if it made us look a certain way or whatever. Um, I mean, we, we begged for like women's style clothing because we were walking around in male basketball shorts that were like below our knees and baggy t-shirts, uh, as students. And so, um, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. And then I think, you know, I've always felt like in terms of my switch from, athletic training to ordain ministry, I really have not changed skill sets, you know, that I use constantly. I mean, I, something, a big draw for me to ministry, you know, besides the whole like call from God and whatever, um, that (laughs) whole thing, uh, (laughs) you know, is, and, and my friend, Angie, who I met through working in medicine, she was x-ray tech at a clinic I worked at and we're still good friends, but she said it best, you know, when I was switching things up, she goes, I really don't see you making that big of a jump because, you know, when you get to the bottom of what you're trying to do in life, it's, you're just trying to build relationships and help people. Right. And, and you're going to do that same thing as a pastor. And, and, you know, I really do think she's right because when I look back on, my experiences as an athletic trainer. And I would say the place where I've had the most fun and felt the most fulfilled was my two years with Georgia state softball. And I am still in touch with most of those girls today. I I'll be doing at least three of their weddings. Um, you know, so it's just this really cool kind of full circle moment. Um, and you know, what's crazy is when I talk to them or meet up, most of them still live in the Atlanta area. So I get to see them a good bit, especially now that I'm in Chattanooga. But, um, when we get together and we're swapping stories, they're never like, 
man, I just loved you. Cause you could tape my ankle so good. You know, it was never that it was always like, you know, you know, you helped me with this problem or that problem, or, you know, you really helped me gain confidence or you helped me come out to my parents or, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, so, so much of that skill set, you know, like what that quote said, purifies it and then kind of, you know, brings it back in a different form is so, so true. I mean, ministry at its core is building relationships and, and that that's relationships with each other relationships with God. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's what athletic training was. If your athlete didn't trust you, you know, they weren't going to listen to you when you come running out on the field and their, you know, leg is bent in the wrong direction. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you had to kind of personify this, um, you know, this essence of trust and, and empathy. And I mean, that's very similar in ministry. So I, I you know, and, and it's just so funny that I'm like, you know, everyone's like, oh, you, you know, that's, a, that's quite a jump. And it's like, mm, not I really. Mean, not really. <laughs> the main thing that stayed the same is the sexism. <laughs> Unfortunately. Well, and the ministry. relationship building. And the yeah. relationship building. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, right. but no, I mean it's and I think too, you know, like you we always talk about how my generation of female pastors is dealing with a lot more microaggressions right. in terms of sexism. A lot of it is just ignorance, people not really realizing that what they're doing, they're doing mm-hmm. because of this inherent sexism that society has mm-hmm. taught us. We don't think women should be in leadership positions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, well, well, can we talk a little bit more about the microaggressions? Um, because um yeah. and we probably need to define that. I can tell in there. Of course, were macroaggressions, which um, I feel like my generation for sure experienced. We didn't have micro oh, yeah. nothing. We had <laughs> everything death was on threats. a macro level. So the <laughs> right. the uh, the death threats under the door, the mm-hmm. the uh, the people who stomped out and left the congregation because you had been called there. Um, you know, all of those, all of those kinds of things. I mean, when, when there were only three of us in our, in our entire South Carolina Senate, mm-hmm. um, which was basically my whole, my whole time in my first call, um, the three of us in the state who were Lutheran pastors would get together once a month and have lunch and kind of be a support group for each other. Yeah. And then we sort of naturally, when we had our statewide or synodical convention every year at lunchtime or at dinner we would often sit together too mm-hmm. and we discovered how dangerous that was and I don't mean dangerous in a physical way but yeah. it automatically called attention to us and mm-hmm. invariably one person after the other would come by our table and say what are you three up to oh yeah because because when a group of women get together they're only trying to start trouble Right. We're plotting something. Obviously. And yeah. so, that, you know, it, it, you know, and that said a lot about their uneasiness. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't remember it being any, you know, lay women who came up to us and said that. Um, but the men definitely did. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's shocking the general like vibe you get of like your presence is threatening the system. Yes, I mean, definitely. I, I, I feel like, or, you know, threatening the status quo. I mean, I, um, I think your generation kind of coming in just as a woman into your position had like two strikes against you, two and a half strikes already. So it's like, you know, like, like we were saying earlier, it's like you mess up once and you're gone because they already had this thought in their head that they didn't want you there anyway. Um, and I do right. feel like while, while my generation doesn't face that, to the point. And I've got to say too, just want to make a note of this. You know, we are both speaking from the perspective of, you know, cisgendered white women. Correct. You know, when we think of our sisters of color, um, our LGBTQ folks, uh, especially mm-hmm. our LGBTQ fo- women of color. Um, I mean, the average wait time for a first call for a woman of color is five years. Right. You know, God love the, the women who are brave enough not just to, to function as leaders in an incredibly white denomination, but then to say, you know, I feel called to be a pastor here and I'll wait. Yeah. Even though I know the cost, they should not have to wait. 
you know, and we'll also have it, there'll be another episode specifically on, you know, the racisms that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we really have to be advocates for each other um, in a oh, lot of ways. Yes, and, and, and I remember, um, you know, uh, gosh, I think it was the North Carolina Senate. And this was pretty public. This was a few years yeah. ago. The men of that very Senate, public, <laughs> very public. The men of that Senate basically said, you know, we essentially refuse to interview with any congregation that will not consider a female candidate, um, which was very cool of them. It was. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there were definitely reactions on both sides, but, and there were some macroaggressions and microaggressions when that happened. But, um, you know, so it it is interesting just how this whole, for one thing, the fact that it's still a quote issue, but also, also that, you know, we're still like, we have come a long way. I mean, I've never, I haven't gotten a death threat because Mm. I'm a woman in ministry, um, I've gotten threats because of some of my political beliefs <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm sure yeah, that's interesting that- is that, yeah. Um, you know, for the, for those of us who were early women, early women, um, <laughs> and I'm sure this is also true of women of color. I'm sure those folks could say the same thing. You weren't rejected because of your political beliefs or anything mm-hmm. that you had even said or written ever mm-hmm. just for who you were. Yes, just that's for when you all, walked That's in the door. all it was. They um, didn't even try to get to know you. Uh, no. Just automatic rejection because your very presence, as you said, caused such anxiety in their system. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I've spoken about before, too, and I, I do want to get back to microaggressions and defining. Oh, we will. Oh, we, we will. will. <laughs> we have so many to talk about. <laughs> There was I, there was some question on like some Facebook platform at some point that said, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Or like, what's something that's always stuck with you? And I don't remember you telling me this much, like as a kid or anything, but mm-hmm. I mean, you and dad also were always incredibly supportive of whatever we wanted to do. I mean, right. if we wanted to have dance classes, we had dance classes. If we wanted to play soccer, we played soccer. Um, and, and so there was never like a, well, you're a girl and you really shouldn't do that. I mean, mm-hmm. um, And so, I mean, if you just look at the bowl cut pictures of me in the late eighties, early nineties, y'all were not forcing us into enter any kind of gender norms. Well, look, and do you, and do you remember (laughs) that your second grade teacher uh, thought you were looking too much like a boy and she told us to put a bow in your hair so that you would look more like a girl? I don't Your dad, your dad smacked that teacher down. I don't remember that, but I remember that teacher. Right. That's probably just something we didn't tell you then, you know, I appreciate it. (laughs) I mean, I believe it remembering her and and who she was. She was, she was very like old school and and crotchety and and not very nice. I do remember the day we all, it was like the one of the, it was like the first week of school and we had our name tags on our desks and we got to decorate them before she laminated them and put them okay. back on our desk. Mm-hmm. And most of the other girls in the class were drawing flowers or butterflies or something. And I drew ninjas. Right. Because <laughs> I loved that. It was a big power. That was a big Power Rangers phase for me in second grade. Oh yeah. And so me and all my best buddies who were all the other boys in the class, we all drew ninjas on our name tags. And I do remember her saying, um, are you sure that's what you want to draw on your name tag? And I was like, yes. And that is a microaggression. (laughs) That is a microaggression. Yes. So, you know, and, and examples of it. So, you know, just to kind of give people a little bit of a background, one of the biggest inspirations for this podcast was um, looking on Facebook and someone had posted, you know, to women Mm -hmm. in general, kind of what's the most sexist thing you've had to deal with in your, in the workplace. And a lot of women pastors responded with just these insane comments that they get from people. And Mm -hmm. most of them are microaggressions, but to those of us experiencing, experiencing them, they are just aggressive. I mean, I mean, I've worn, you know, I typically wear pants just because they're more comfortable and being from athletic training, we were told Mm -hmm. from the beginning, you, you can't wear a skirt. 
like you can't wear, you have to be in pants, you have to be in a polo. You know, a lot of it was just to all look uniform. And a lot of it right. too was we're, we're rolling on the ground. with Yeah, athletes, you're doing so physical stuff. Right. But so that's just kind of stuck with me. Well, anytime I wear a skirt, someone inevitably says like, well, someone's showing some leg today or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Or like, well, you look fancy or you're looking girly. And it's just like, you know, you probably see more of the shape of my leg when I'm in my, you know, pixie pants from old Navy than when I'm wearing this flowy skirt. Um, but there's all, there's always a comment about clothing, which is a, another episode in and of itself. Um, you people know, really, then, people really like the red dress I wore for, for Pentecost this Sunday. Well, you do have your moments where I like to say you get sassy for Jesus. Sassy for Jesus, I did. And that you got Sunday. your very sashy little gold shoes. I mean, mm-hmm. God, we're being we're being ridiculous to each other right now, but mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, it is crazy. Like there were stories of women who said, um, people asked them not to wear dangly earrings because it was distracting them from mm-hmm. you know their worship experience. People who would not take communion from them because they had nail polish on. Mm. Um, people who said, asked them not to wear heels because they didn't like hearing them walk through the, the, you know, on the stone like floor, tile like, floor or whatever, clackety, clackety, mm-hmm. clackety, clack. um, weight is usually something that for some reason people think they can comment to women on more than men. And, and I have had male colleagues who like, you know, someone's kind of said like, get a little pudgy there, pastor or something. It's inappropriate no matter what your gender, but I do feel like, I do feel like women deal with that more. I had, um, a gentleman, an older gentleman at a congregation I was with in seminary who after service kind of in the line, you know, as people are leaving, we're greeting folks and, you know, all of that. Um, poked me in the stomach and said, you should probably skip lunch today. I know. It's incredible. And I mean, it's just like, you, like, how do you respond to that? Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I think in some ways, definitely, you know, if, if you're a white straight male, you probably don't get as many of these comments, but mm-hmm. I don't, somehow, somehow the pastors in general, people feel like they can say anything at all to you. Yeah. It is an interesting profession in that sense. I mean, we do live in fishbowls in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, um, it's pretty crazy. Like even like be, from being a PK where like, I felt like members of your congregation knew what grade I got in math before mm-hmm. I did, mm-hmm. you know, all the way to, to being a, a new pastor. Now it's like, y- you just feel like you can't go to the grocery store with eyes on you. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, And, you know, there's always that old joke that says, what's the difference between a Lutheran and a Baptist, a Lutheran will talk to you in the liquor store, but, Mm -hmm. you know, even still, I mean, the amount of questions I get, and this is not like necessarily at my current congregation, but in the past of like your dating life, are you going to have kids? The motherhood is also a, a big kid. There are a lot of microaggressions in general for women surrounding motherhood, but as a pastor, Um, I mean, there was another woman who talked about, uh, when she was pregnant and got comments when her stomach was sticking out further than her breasts, Mm -hmm. like people commented on that to her. Um, and you know, so there's, there's so many microaggressions in terms of appearance, but also in terms of like authority, um, you know, sitting in a meeting with fellow pastors and lay folks and the lay folks refer to the men as pastor so-and-so but then only call you by your name. Right. I mean, that that's happened to me many, many times in, in pretty much every context I've been in, mm-hmm. um, you know, or, you know, just like, well, I'm not going to bother you with that. I'll talk to so-and-so about it. Or I don't think you could handle that. Or, or like, mm-hmm. man, your sermon was pretty fiery. Must be that time of the month. You know, I mean, oh my gosh, it's just, it's crazy. And so it's, it's shocking how, you know, even mm-hmm. though they're microaggressions, they, they leave huge potholes in, mm-hmm. in your psyche and in your, I mean, they are, it is exhausting. Yeah. I remember, <laughs> I remember um, a woman who um, pretty much my generation, actually a little bit older than me. And she was, became an executive in the ELCA, but she was talking about, <laughs> she was um, visiting a church and she was the guest preacher. Mm-hmm. And so she was in the women's bathroom. She did not go into the men's bathroom, but she was in the women's <laughs> bathroom. 
And um, a member of the congregation was in there too. And um, my friend um, was having her period and she took out a tampon from her purse. Mm -hmm. And the other woman looked at her like, oh, like she wasn't sure if she should take communion from her because she was having her period. What? Yeah. Good Lord. I mean, I, I haven't heard that stuff in a while, but no. Oh so how, God. what do you think about how, um, so microaggressions are everywhere and any, mm-hmm. anybody, what I was going to say earlier is, and I don't know if this sounds problematic or not, but I have concluded and nothing has pushed me off of it yet, but I've concluded okay. that I'm just part of our, I think maybe definitely Western culture. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the, our hero, um, our superhero is always mm-hmm. the white, mm-hmm. straight, and preferably charismatic man. Cisgendered anytime, man. Yeah. Cisgender. So anytime you take one of those adjectives away um, or nouns away and, um, you know, be it the whiteness, be it the, straight versus gay, the, the, the man versus woman. Mm-hmm. A notch. Yeah. If you're, as you were saying earlier, if you are a woman of color who is um, lesbian or gay um, and who knows what else, I mean, how many notches down do you go? Right. And um, so you and I basically are just, you know, it's just our gender. Or one notch down. Yeah. Or one notch down. And you just think about, you know, that's the person and that might be part of what happened in the election that you were mentioning Mm -hmm. too, is that, you know, in the voting booth, people were like, well, we need somebody to be our superhero. Yeah. And default, you know, especially if you've got any questions or any concerns, the default is just going to be there. Yeah. And um, no, that holds up. I remember you yeah. even mentioning that in a sermon like a decade ago mm-hmm. and it it's sad, but yeah, it holds up. And it's finally something people are realizing. You know, I think right. the first time I heard you say that it was like mind blowing, even for me. And now, you know, you do hear it all the time, kind of our mm-hmm. society's hero. And I mean, they even... <laughs> They even covered it in the new Marvel series. Um, uh, what was it? A ca- or Captain America and the Winter Soldier about yeah. Anthony Mackie's character, you know, being a black Captain America. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, if you have, even if you're not a superhero fan, I highly recommend that. They really do some incredible social commentary on that knockdown. I mean, you know, you, you got to think too, it's like, certain notches are going to be bigger to certain communities, right? right? Color has a certain size notch and then sexual orientation, you know, gender identity, Mm -hmm. these notches can, you know, go from just a very small jump down a two inch stair to a cliff, Mm -hmm. depending on, on where you are. I mean, me being a woman, both of us being women pastors in the South, that notch of gender is far bigger than it would be in a lot of other places. And I'm not discounting the experiences of our, of our, you know, uh, sisters in other areas, but I mean, I do, I, I had to laugh a little bit when I was, I did my internship in Oregon, which is known as a, can be a pretty liberal state kind of definitely depends on where you are, but, um, they're not as liberal as they think they are. I think, right, I, I, think right, a, right. I think a lot of communities, nobody's are, as woke as they think they nobody's are as woke as they think they are. But, um, you know, I did have quite a few people say, cause I, I let it be known that I was, you know, aiming to come back to the Southeast for, for multiple reasons. And, and people would say all the time, like, are you sure? Like, you really want to go back to the South? Like, you know, and, and, and one of the biggest reasons they said, you know, do you think you're going to get a job quickly being a woman? And I was wow. like, I was like, listen, I face quite a bit of sexism being here in Oregon. <laughs> so it's not, it's not perfect anywhere. That's right. Um, I mean, I remember a conversation, uh, at that church we were meeting with, um, our church had a really big, uh, woodlot ministry, which I had to look up before I went out there. Basically they would, store, uh, cut and dry firewood 
because in that area of central Oregon, a lot of folks still heated their homes with wood burning stoves, especially those um, uh, kind of in, in the lower socioeconomic classes. And so in the winter months, we would give out truckloads of wood for people. And for a lot of folks, if they were living in like a trailer with a electric heater, trying to heat that trailer would shoot their electric bill to $600 for a month. But if they could use their wood burning stove, it saved them hundreds of dollars. So we really considered it as a um, homeless prevention program. So we were having a meeting with um, some of the, some men from the community who were very invested in this ministry because we had churches from all over helping us by either sending volunteers or letting us store, you know, unmilled logs on their land. And there was this one man in particular who just kept hammering home that this was a men's ministry. Mm. He was like, I just really think it's important to keep this a men's ministry. I mean, the men want to bring their sons out there and they want to teach them how to run a chainsaw and they want to, you know, bond with their sons over this kind of a project. And I'm sitting there looking over at my supervisor, who was a man. And is this, he is not correcting him because there were so many women involved from our congregation in this ministry, including myself. Right. Like when I got there, that was one of the ministries I wanted to be involved in the most. I mean, I was like, teach me how to run that wood splitter. That looks so cool. Um, so I finally got sick of it. And I said to this guy, I was like, listen, can we just kind of switch our language here a little bit? Because I think there are a lot of women that mm-hmm. want to be involved in this ministry, but don't necessarily feel like they're invited or able to participate because of this mentality that it's a men's ministry. You know, there are a whole lot of women were driving up pickup trucks to pick up this wood, you mm-hmm. know, and a whole lot of women wanted to come out and run chainsaws and make, they, they knew how. Um, and I actually use the example of like my personality versus my versus dad's. And I said, you know, or, or no. So, so the guy, this guy who was using this language said at one point, you know, women have like their quilting ministries. Okay. They don't, they don't need <laughs> to be, you know, out at the woodlot. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I said to him, I said, well, listen, my dad who could very much run a chainsaw and has, he would probably rather be part of a quilting ministry. And I would rather be at the woodlot ministry. So that's mm-hmm. a very dangerous assumption. And, and, uh, just kind of, I just kind of figured, what do I have to lose? (laughs) And as the, as the only woman at that table, you know, Mm -hmm. I kind of felt like I had the responsibility to, to speak up in that way. And of course he kind of rolled his eyes, like, oh, this woman making me, making me be inclusive. How dare she? And well, uh, you know, because, you know, he's talking about there being anxiety in the system. Like we want something that's ours Mm -hmm. and, you know, so you know, your generation experiences more microaggressions, I think, you know, the, the macroaggressions that, (laughs) that my generation did, you know, it's like, what's our response to that? Call 911, you know, right. But nowadays where people are much more subtle about the expressing their anxiety, Mm -hmm. that your very presence causes, what would your response be? So if you're in a meeting um, somebody says something like that, what would you hope that the other people in the room would do or say, or at least one person would do or say that would help? So you're not left all by yourself. Well, I think in a big way, right. As long as the cisgendered straight white men are our society's heroes, Mm -hmm. they have to step up right in the same way white folks need to use their privilege to hand the microphone off to others. Men have got to use their privilege, their gender privilege Mm -hmm. to pass the microphone to others. And like using the, uh, that example of, of that woodlot meeting, it would have gone so far, not just because of the authority he had at that meeting, but Mm -hmm. also his gender. If my supervisor had said, you know what? I agree with her. And I think she has a point. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have a lot of women and, and I think the women in the congregation who either were involved and kind of forced their way in there or wanted to be involved, but didn't feel welcome would have really appreciated hearing that he stepped up. Um, but even 
another woman in a meeting like that, you know, there's always a, a really kind of dangerous balance between showing unity and mm-hmm. freaking people out even more. Like you were talking about it at the, at the conferences when they were like, well, what are you three up to? You know, right. it's, it's a real shame that we have to kind of use that caution. So instead of, you know, multiple women speaking up in a meeting, it's almost like one person will step up and then they'll just be kind of those knowing glances, you know, between the other women and maybe a couple eye rolls of like, here we go again. There's, there's so, so much strength in numbers. I mean, we've seen that in the me too movement, you know, when, you know, and, and that's, gosh, that's a whole nother issue too. the sexual harassment that gets tied into being a woman in ministry Mm -hmm. that has not gone away um, at all. And uh, you know, I think, you know, knowing you have that support system is huge and knowing that people are willing to go to bat for you in, in a public way. Um, right. you know, like, and not just in the bathroom, seriously, I right. know we're back to the bathroom, but that's yeah. what used to happen in my time for sure. Mm-hmm. You'd be around a table, things were not going well. Um, and the women all knew it, but they would, nobody would say anything. And then when there was a break, we'd go into the bathroom and then they'd start griping about what had been said. And I remember one time I was a young pastor and I said, I don't want to hear it in here. You could have said something in the meeting and you didn't. Yeah. And there, I mean, there's such a fear still of retaliation, right? Like, like, Mm -hmm. okay, well, if I, if I keep pushing this, eventually this person is, I mean, and it's really sad. I mean, I know it's in every profession for sure. And I'm sure a lot of what we talked about today is all over different professions. Women are dealing with this everywhere. Um, but you know, there's something about kind of the church environment, a lot of times where if one person decides that, and if they have any kind of influence in a congregation, it can be very scary to stand up to that person because your job could be at stake. Um, you know, and it could turn on a dime. I know, you know, you had an experience with, with a, with a difficult council president who Mm -hmm. wanted some someone much younger and quite frankly, much more male. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that put your job in danger for like three years mm-hmm. and it was a big eggshell situation. And so I think, you know, to all, to all the other women out there and, and w- people who identify as women who are working against these things, like coming together is huge. I think a lot of times, sometimes you have to hit people over the head with a frying pan well, you can you use know, it as a teaching moment. Right. And, and I think that's key too. And, and that's honestly part of the, part of the whole thing that sucks mm-hmm. about it is the teaching moments are exhausting mm-hmm. and, and sometimes you just can't do it. I mean, and I'm sure you've, you've had more experiences than that, where sometimes things just slide because you're like, I can't fight this fight today. Um, I know, I know a lot of people of color that feel that way in terms of Mm -hmm. racism, fighting racism, a lot of, you know, uh, we had a, we had some, um, trans students at my seminary and gender nonconforming folks that were just like, I just can't answer those questions. Like I'm exhausted. Um, and so educating each other or even just doing your own research, God forbid, you know, we look into things on our own, like, Mm -hmm. you know, Hey, straight white men read a feminist book. (laughs) Like we need you to do that, Um, you know, and take us seriously. When we say that situation that just happened, my gender has a lot to do with that person's reaction. Don't downplay that. It's our reality, you know? So, I mean, same question to you, mom, like how, how do you react in, in these meetings, uh, when you just get the sexism vibe and, and, you know, Chime in well, here. I um, I ha- I now have a few um, a few advantages <laughs> that yeah. you know I didn't have before. I I do finally feel like um, my age is respected. Mm. Um, and so folks You're now like a will wise turn grandmother Willow. Yeah, I'm like the the wise <laughs> grandmother Willow, and so people will ask that, but. I also, um, and with age comes some bravery. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you feel like, you know, 
I always have a pretty gentle way with people. I, I'm not a person who will try to take somebody down in a meeting or embarrass mm-hmm. the heck out of them or whatever. But, um, but I will say, you know, I'll maybe gently correct or say, I, I think what you meant to say was this, you know, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and then they'll, they can kind of laugh at themselves and then move on. And right. I hope that they have, they have learned something there that will, but you do have to, to keep doing it. Nothing is done. Nothing is finished. We're all, um, we're all frail human beings. Um, none of us is perfect. And I'm sure I have offended people of color and, um, you know, gay and lesbian people without meaning to. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, so we, we're all doing that. None of us, none of us are perfect and all of us yeah. are learning. That'll preach. <laughs> Yeah. Good to talk to you today. I know. Good to see you. And uh, to all of our sisters out there, keep working and uh, keep showing them you belong. I I know um, that piece of advice I was mentioning earlier that I forgot to say from you. You always said whenever a a woman comes to the table, she has to prove why she belongs, where most of the time men have to prove why they don't belong. Right. And so, uh, you know, that always is in the back of my head when I'm, when I'm sitting in those meetings or, or, or anything like that. So, um, keep going ladies, keep going. And thanks men for all of your support. Yes. Thank you to, to those men who, um, have been, uh, giving us the mic for all these years and, and big shout out to the one and only Frank Anderson. He, uh, (laughs) he was making major major supportive moves way back in the seventies and eighties where absolutely. um, Uh, I always do love that story of how, you know, dad kind of told you during seminary, you get your call and I'll follow you because he was aware of his privilege and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, used it to his advantage. So good job, dad. Yeah. Good job, Frank. (laughs) Good job, Frankie. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right, everybody. Well, that's it for us. Uh, We'll be back for episode three coming up here soon. And uh, we hope you are enjoying um, our conversations. Hope so. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.